Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Finding your place in Hebrews chapter 7, I would encourage you also to find your place in Genesis 14. Uh, find a piece of paper or something to mark that. You'll need both of these chapters because Hebrews 7 will be our focus this morning, and, uh, but you'll note that you'll want to refer to Genesis 14. Beginning in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, today we're in the seventh, beginning in the fourth chapter of Hebrews, the writer, who is of course anonymous, we don't know exactly who he was, the writer mentions the name of a most obscure person who is introduced in Genesis 14, a man by the name of Melchizedek. Uh, The reason he is obscure is because he is given three verses in the narrative of Genesis. Three verses. And he is never mentioned again for a thousand years of biblical history until David mentions him In Psalm 110, verse 4, he's mentioned one time in a thousand years. David, it is estimated, lived roughly a thousand years before Christ, before the writer of Hebrews. So follow the trajectory with me. Some 2,000 years before Christ, Melchizedek is mentioned in three verses in Genesis 14. He is silent for a thousand years until David gives him one verse in Psalm 110. And now the writer of Hebrews mentions him in three chapters and says he is critically important to your understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you like a good mystery, this is your chapter. If you like when literary people sort of say something in the opening five minutes of uh, some dramatic presentation, a movie or a play or something, and you wonder, what does that mean? And it doesn't make sense until you get to the very end. If that's kind of the way you like your drama, well, Melchizedek is your poster child. This is the guy that you want to know about. And I want to suggest to you it's far more than simply a literary device. It is indeed part and parcel to what we believe about who Christ is and what Christ has accomplished. So we're going to read the seventh chapter And uh, we will immediately hearken back to Genesis 14, where we're introduced to Melchizedek. We will again consider Psalm 110, verse 4, because in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, he's going to mention Psalm 110, verse 4. In other words, this man, Melchizedek, he's going to mention him for the fourth and the fifth time in Hebrews. I will tell you that the writer of Hebrews is convinced that Melchizedek is a very important person. So we need to understand why that is so and what difference does that make in my life today in the 21st century. 
So let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Hebrews 7. You'll remember that he closed chapter 6 with the name Melchizedek. So he returns to the subject that he began talking about in chapter 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, this is he meaning Melchizedek, He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. The word Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. That is, he is the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor, when Melchizedek met him. Now I'm going to stop here and ask you to hold your place because in order to understand the 10 verses we've just read, we must further understand all that's happening in Genesis 14 because all that we just read is a recitation of what has happened some 2,000 years before in Genesis 14. So let's turn back to Genesis 14 and to read some of this narrative. Let me, uh, if I might offer a quick summary so we don't have to read quite as much. You'll recall that Abraham uh, has come to the area of the world today that we call Israel, or was then called Canaan. And he is uh, told by the Lord that he will uh, be the father of a great nation. He is told that in Genesis 12. He's told it again in Genesis 15. He's going to be told, told it again in Genesis 17 and then repeated again in Genesis 22 that we referenced last week. So this is the the narrative, you will, the glue that holds the entire Bible together. God made a promise. And then he swore to keep his promise. And all those who believe God's promise will be saved. And those who do not are damned. It is as simple as that. So in the midst of that, there is this very seemingly outlier story, Genesis 14. It appears that there are five kings in the north, or rather four, four kings in the north. Uh, Today we'd call that area of the world Syria. That have decided they want to come in and take over the, the land. There are five kings in the land, 
Abraham is not one of those kings. He's just a guy, uh, a major guy, significant man. But nonetheless, he's not a king. So four kings come into the region ruled by five kings, and they want to have their way. They want to take their property and their women and their children and their money and so forth. And so they do. So there is, in the opening verses of Genesis 14, there is a raid, if you will, from the kings of the north who come in and take over uh, what today we'd call the promised land or Canaan or Israel. And they deport all these people. They take them back home. They, They capture slaves and they take them back home. In the process, in the sweep, they conquer the city of Sodom. We've heard of Sodom. So he takes the king of Sodom. And in the process, he swoops up all the inhabitants of Sodom, and one of those is Lot, the nephew of Abraham. So Abraham rallies the troop. I've got a vision here of John Wayne, if you will. Uh, he, he hears of a, a raid against his property or his friend's property, and so he gets all of his people together. And uh, in Genesis 14, we, we learn that, that, that Abraham is a major player. He's a, he's a a man who, uh, who has a, a lot of uh, property, if you will, a lot of people. And so he puts his men together, and they go, and they uh, capture, or they, they, they go against the, the four kings of the north. Uh, he attacks them in the middle of the night, and he overruns them, and he takes all their spoil, meaning the stuff they stole plus the stuff they had. He takes all that, and he brings it back. So Abraham is, is this larger-than-life figure in Genesis 14. Just want to read beginning in verse 13. Genesis 14, 13. Let's read the narrative. Then one who had escaped, meaning the raid that captured Lot, came and told Abraham, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abraham heard that his kinsman, Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. I don't know about you, but I don't have 318 in my house. That, that is, that's quite an endeavor. He, he's got a lot going on. He's a major, major player, if you will. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan was the northernmost significant town in Israel. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So that's all you get. That's the story of Abraham and the raid. So he goes up north, he wins the battle, he comes back. But now, now, the paragraph that matters, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlamer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went, out, uh, Sodom went out to meet him, the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, we've never heard of Melchizedek prior to Genesis 14. But here's what we know about him. He is a priest of God Most High. Now, that is a unique combination. The term most high is a translation of the Greek 
uh, if you will, the Greek words for God, most high, are El Elyon. But this also includes the covenant name of God, often translated Yahweh or Jehovah. That is a unique combination. It's not typical to, comp- to if you will, to pair Jehovah with El Elyon, God most high. That's not the typical way that's done, but that's what's done here. Why is that significant? Because the writer of Hebrews wants you to know, or rather the the writer of Genesis wants you to know, this is no fly-by-night guy. This is no amateur. He is a priest of God Most High. On top of that, he is the king of Salem. Now, Salem is a city. Uh, It is believed that Salem is, in fact, the predecessor to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the, if you will, the descendant, the city of Jerusalem is the descendant of Salem, ancient Salem. So Salem means peace. Melchizedek means son of righteousness. So he is both king and priest. By the way, here and nowhere else in the Old Testament is a person identified as both king and priest. Kings are not permitted to be priests, and priests in no way in the Scripture are are kings. There is only one place in the Scripture where those two things nexus, and it is Genesis 14 in the person of Melchizedek. He is king of God Most High. So the king of Salem, rather the, the, the king of Sodom comes out, and also Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out, and he is also a priest, and he blessed, and notice what he says in verse 19, he blessed him, and he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he makes clear that, in fact, that which has just happened in Abraham's life, going on this raid, and capturing all of this uh, property, and bringing it back, these people bringing it back, it is all a part of the plan of God, that God blesses Abraham. And so Melchizedek is the one who comes out to pronounce this blessing upon Abraham and to suggest that, in fact, Abraham does acknowledge that. He's acknowledging publicly that Abraham is a follower of God and that all of this has just transpired not because of Abraham, but because of God. And then this interesting verse, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything. (laughs) Now, you know, it's often said that when a preacher reads the word tithe, and the King James, the word here is tithe, a, a tithe, the word tithe means tenth. Anytime a preacher reads the word tithe, he just has to say something, right? Just has to. Well, I'm not going to disappoint you. If you don't believe in tithing, and your reason for not believing in tithing is because the Old Testament law has been superseded by the New Covenant, I would agree with you that the Old Testament law has been superseded by the New Covenant. That's about to, we're about to rain down on that paragraph in in Hebrews 7. I would agree that tithing is obsolete if you base tithing on the Old Testament law. But I would ask you to remember something. 
By whom did the Old Testament law come? The answer to that is Moses. I would ask you, who came first in genealogy, Abraham or Moses? And the answer is Abraham, by some six centuries, by the way. So six centuries before there was a law that you should tithe, there was tithing. There is no requirement here that Abraham give a tenth, but he did. There is no requirement that Abraham do many of the things that Abraham did, except that from within his own heart, within his own life, he had been transformed by the grace of God. This promise that God loved him and that God cared for him and that God intended to make him a great nation and that God intended to provide an eternity for Abraham. This promise that God had made to him that was ultimately going to be fulfilled in the lineage of Abraham. Without Abraham, there is no Savior. And there is no Savior unless Abraham believes there is a Savior. Do you see how these things work together, tongue and groove? Abraham is the mechanism, the human mechanism, through which God brings about the Savior. Centuries later, millennia, two millennia later, Jesus comes as a descendant of Abraham. Because Abraham is a child of God who believes God and trusts God and hopes in God and clings to the truth that God will one day redeem him and, and save him and secure him into eternity because of the work of his descendant. So here we have an encounter between this strange, unfamiliar man, Melchizedek, priest of God Most High and King of Salem, priest of peace and King of righteousness. A very strange man. And what happens here? Abraham honors him, gives him tithes. He recognizes him. If you will, Abraham is the inferior. Melchizedek is the superior. You, as an inferior, don't give tithes to people who are inferior. You give tithes to people who are superior. In this case, you're giving tithes to God. You're expressing gratitude to God. You're expressing joy in God. Why are we faithful? It is because of God. It is because God, who, who doesn't have to love us, doesn't have to care for us, doesn't have to shepherd us, doesn't have to give his only begotten son for us, has done those things. Who is God that he needs man? That's the question of Psalm 8. Who is God that somehow he would defer to man, care for man, shepherd man? Who is God that he would allow an army of 318 people to go up against four kings and win? Abraham knew that he couldn't do that by himself. He couldn't do that on his own. You can say, well, he was a brave man. He was a bold man, and God blesses boldness. Of course he does, but he doesn't bless boldness that pe for people who are unnecessarily unrighteous, unnecessarily uh, unfaithful. He doesn't just bless boldness carte blanche. 
He blesses boldness for those who stand out and step up for the glory of God and for the power of God and depend upon God and cry out to God. And that's the record of his interaction with Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the one who God sent to receive the tithes from Abraham. Melchizedek is superior. He is the priest king of the God most high. And Abraham is a guy. And Abraham paid tithes to God, and Melchizedek received them. Now, what is significant here is that we don't know where Melchizedek came from. Remember, we have six centuries left before the law. Exodus 24, where the law is actually ratified, is 600 years after Genesis 14. There is no priesthood. There is no temple, there is no tabernacle, and there is no law. There is no sacrificial system. There's no lambs, goats, bulls, doves, none of that. None of that. That's 600 years in the future. None of that exists. But here's this guy, the priest king of the God Most High. He is the most mysterious man in the Old Testament. And he goes away for a thousand years and we don't hear a word about him until Psalm 110. Let's go back to Hebrews 7. So we just read the first 10 verses. Now we're going to read beginning in verse 11. He tells us that that the work of God through Abraham in paying tithes to Melchizedek shows that Melchizedek is the priest of God. He, if you will, does priestly duties before they were ever identified, before they were ever prescribed, before they were ever legalized, created by the law. So he now turns back to the law. He's comparing Melchizedek, who is a priest in a mysterious way, to the Levitical priests, who are the ultimate children of Abraham by genealogy. Abraham, of course, gave birth to Isaac. Isaac gave birth to uh, the sons of of, uh, uh, Isaac, rather to Jacob, and then ultimately uh, to his sons. And uh, of course, the priestly tribe is the Levitical tribe, the tribe of Levi. Jesus, of course, is not of the tribe of Levi. He's of the tribe of Judah. So I would ask you, here's your problem, here's your conundrum. If you're committed to the Old Testament law, committed to the Old Testament concepts of priesthood, you have to ask yourself, how does a son of Judah become a son of Levi? How does a son of Judah become a high priest? Because the law says the high priest must be of the tribe of Levi. So that helps you as you think about verse 11. So if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You remember Aaron is Moses' brother. Aaron is of the tribe of Levi, even as Moses. And he is the first high priest. So in Exodus, where the priesthood is created, And then the first priest is consecrated. Aaron is number one. He's the top of the food chain, if you will. 
Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. If the law creates this, but we're now we're talking about that, then there must be a different law. Because the law created this, but we're talking about that. So there must be another law that creates that. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident our Lord was descended from Judah. In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing. Nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. That is one of the most precious phrases in the Bible. The power of an indestructible life. Think with me for a moment. Step back. What is the big threat that Pilate waves in the face of Jesus? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? Because you see, in earthly terms, death is the worst result. Death is the ultimate end, or if you will, the ultimate downer. In earthly terms, in worldly terms. And yet the scripture says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. But rather, fear the one who can abandon the soul to hell. Our problems, friends, is too often we think that somehow it is, it is our earthly kingdom that God has secured for us. No, it is not. I, I, I've got a newsflash for you. Every last one of us will die. Death is coming for all of us. And we need not fear it like those who do not have an answer. Think of Genesis 22 we referenced a week ago. Abraham has the knife over the chest of his son and God stops him. We're going to see when we get to Hebrews 10 that Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead, that God would, would do what God promised to do, that God would make him a great nation through the loins of this boy that he now has commanded him to kill. Only faith can believe that. The world would say that's foolish. And yet the scripture says it was faith and God blessed it. And as a result, he swore in Genesis 22, I will make you a great nation. I will keep my promise. I promised and I swore. And so by two unchangeable things that God cannot lie, I will keep my word. Melchizedek is an example of not one who has been created by the law because he lived centuries before the law. Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Levi. He's not a Levitical priest at all because he's not of the tribe of Levi. So here we come. He has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and he quotes Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He swore that you are a priest forever. Key word here, forever, forever. He's going to contrast that with the Levitical priest who just served for a season. Now, you know, we, we want to celebrate people all the time, who, and, and rightly so, who work a job and they'll stay in that job for decades. 
Here's a man who retires after 40 years, a man who retires after 45 years, a man who retires after 50 years. And we say, that's a long time. I have great respect for pastors who stay in one church even for a long, long, long time. I'm committed to that myself as your pastor. Stay there for a long, long, long time. There's balance in that. There's, there's if you will, there, there's mercy in that. I think there's real value in that. But 40 years is not forever. Fifty years is not forever. And even the best high priest, even the best, can be an evil man. Consider the high priest of Jesus' day who presided over a kangaroo court and referred him to Pilate so that he might be crucified. There is no son of man who is adequate to be anything forever. But he says of the one who is coming, You will be a priest forever. Just like Melchizedek. Which brings us to verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. In other words, if you're committed to becoming righteous on the basis of works, on the basis of your works, on the basis of your deeds, if you're committed to becoming righteous on that basis, understand this, the scripture says that effort, that effort of you becoming righteous on the basis of your works is useless. You're not going to be successful. And even if you could draw a line today and say, from this day forward, I will be perfect. If you said that, you still have to contend with yesterday and the day before and the day before and the year before and the year before when you were anything but perfect. There's not a one of us who doesn't have sin on our hands. So a formant commandment is set aside because it is weak and useless. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. He quotes Psalm 10 verse 4 again for the fifth time in this book. If there is a psalm this guy loves, the writer of Hebrews, it is Psalm 110. Many of you know that I'm doing a, a, a Wednesday devotional on Facebook every week, and I'm doing the psalms. We're doing selected psalms. And, and last week we were in Psalm 14, so we're a long way from Psalm 110. But I tell you, I'm, I'm, my goal is to go to about eight or ten minutes. When I get to Psalm 110, I think it's going to be hard to get under ten minutes because it's, there's so much going on there. And what's going on is this verse primarily. Verse 4, you are a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Where did the Lord swear? 
He swore in Genesis 14. He swore in Genesis 22. This, verse 22, makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The guarantor of a better covenant. Now, what does that matter? Well, interesting here, this word guarantor in the Greek language of the New Testament, this is the only place in the Bible that word is used. Because no one else can guarantee anything. People run around all the time like peacocks. Well, I guarantee you this. Well, welcome to the world of liars. Because, friend, you can't guarantee. You can't guarantee your next breath. You can't guarantee your next good deed. You can't guarantee your next kindness to your spouse. You can't guarantee the next good deed to a sinner. You can't guarantee the the next good thing to an enemy. You can't guarantee anything in your life because you don't have the power. You don't have the authority. And for the most part, you don't even have the heart to guarantee the things that are hard. And yet the scripture says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. (laughs) The former priests, verse 23, were many in number, but because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, they got a shelf life. They last 40 years and they're, they're done. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think with us for a moment about the implications of that. It means that Jesus is our permanent high priest. He's not our temporary high priest. He's not our interim high priest. He's not our incidental high priest. He is the permanent high priest. He's not a high priest after the order of Levi because those guys all die. He's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek who came from nowhere and disappeared to somewhere. And we don't know anything about him. He concludes in verse 26, this paragraph, for it's indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. And look at these modifiers. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You cannot say that about any earthly man, let alone the high priest. You cannot say that. So as a result, he has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now I'm going to step back from this entire narrative and ask you to think with me about something. What has all this got to do with yourself? Myself. What has it got to do with us? Well, simply this. At the end of the day, there is a God who is holy, and He has created men and women, and they are not. So there's an enormous character gap between the holiness of God and the wannabe holiness of man. Enormous. And it really wouldn't matter if it was enormous, it wouldn't really matter if it were just a little. You may be the best person that any of us ever know, but I tell you, friend, there still is a character gap between you and God. And the scripture is clear that we have to be holy, and none of us are holy on our own achievements because there is a gap, which means we need someone to stand between us and God. Now, that person in the Old Testament is personified, pictured, by a man called the high priest. 
God created a system that features one man standing between God and man. God created that system. He did so at the hands of Moses. But understand that that system actually is designed to serve man. And the system is flawed. The system is broken. Because the man standing between man and God is but a man. He's a peer. He's just like me, just like you. He's a peer. He can't stand between us. He has no advocacy with God on his own. He has no access to God on his own. And even if he did, he's, he has a shelf life. He's going to live 30 years, 40 years, 50 years maybe as high priest, and then he's done. And then we turn it over to another guy. So just the very fact that he is done indicates his weakness. He's so weak, he doesn't have the power over death. He doesn't have the power over the penalty of sin. He's so weak, he dies. We're all, even death is testimony. Why are so many people afraid of death? Because we feel so powerless. But the man of God, Jesus Christ, is the son of God who conquers death. Because he is indestructible. Understand, friend, you need a high priest, and you better have one. Because if you don't, it's just you and God, mano y mano, and I'll tell you how that's going to turn out. You're going to lose. God's going to destroy you. But you need someone who can stand between and be your advocate, can be your go-between, can be your priest, who says, yes, yes, I have paid that price. The, the price that he earned, that she earned, the, the price of their sin, the price of their failure, I have satisfied that. I've paid that. In other words, Jesus is going to stand before God and he's going to say, this is one of mine. This is one of mine. We need a priest who's going to help us stand before God. You say, well, the sacrificial system, what do you do about that? Well, he's going to say it here. He's going to say it again in Hebrews 9. The sacrificial system is flawed because the sacrificial system is carried around by the priest who is flawed. So if the guy carrying it is broken, the very thing he's carrying is also broken. Everything he touches is broken. The whole system is broken on the basis of eternity. The high priest is not indestructible, and the animals are not indestructible. They're all dying by design. They're dying. And then ultimately, the very people he's representing, we're dying, and we don't have any hope of standing before this God. We need a high priest. We do. And here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to make you an ethical person. <laughs> but if you're not an ethical person, then you don't know Christ. He didn't come to give you your best life now. <laughs> because frankly, there is a life to come that's a bunch, 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 bunch better than this. I'm going to the place where there's no more dying, no more crying. I'm going to the place where there's no more fear of death because there is no more death. I'm going to the place where there is eternal life. And there is only one who can get me there. 
And that is the one who's proven himself to be indestructible. And the reason he's indestructible is because he is the son of Almighty God. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son. You know, if you're the king of everything, and none of us are, none of us ever will be, but if you were the king of everything, you could decide everything. Well, God has decided. And he's decided that everything is going to center on his son. Everything is going to focus on his son. He said, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do that. Well, friend, you're not God. And God has decided. Everything is on his son. And he's made his son king. And he's made his son priest. Just like Melchizedek. A man who has no beginning or any end. Who seemingly is indestructible. Who serves God most high. If you think you're going to heaven, you better button down your reasons. You better make sure. Because the only people going are the people who have an advocate in the indestructible Son of Almighty God who stands at the right hand, who is holy for us. And is the one appointed to become the heir of it all. I beg of you, look to Christ. There is none other. He is better than any Old Testament symbol. He is the Son. Let's pray. Father, it is with gratitude this morning that we look to you with thanksgiving. We call you Lord. And rejoice that you've given us life through your son. You appointed him to be the heir of all things. And for that, Lord, we are grateful. Thank you. We pray, Father, you would draw us near to you. That you would expose in us any self-reliance. Or any reliance on uh, the world or its systems, whatever they may be. Or any other uh, man-made process, Lord, Rather, there is one process, and that is the process that God has ordained. And that is to focus everything on his son, the indestructible life of his son. Thank you that Jesus conquered the grave. We, too, by looking to him, will do the same. Glory to God. Glory to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.